From the book of Hebrews, chapters 1 and 2, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 1. Okay. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. It is not to the angels that he has subjected the world to come, but about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. The word of the Lord. Will you stand with me for the reading of our gospel? From the gospel according to St. Mark, beginning with verse 2 of chapter 10. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them and blessed them. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Um, just a couple things before we begin. First of all, I want to... Uh, it's so interesting that since we have begun um, walking through the texts of the lectionary, the, this lectionary is this um, historic pattern of scripture readings that the church 
for generations have read from on particular Sundays. And um, there's always an urge in me to, uh, you know, when we hear the word of the Lord, we're always challenged by the word of the Lord. Like it's supposed to provoke things in us. It's supposed to challenge us. I think sometimes maybe we over explain things a little bit and we don't actually allow the words to challenge us. But I do find that in myself. Whenever we read passages of scripture, sometimes I wanna go, oh, are they gonna know what we're talking about here? Let's jump up and explain this. Let's talk about this. Let's unpack this. Let's soften this or whatever. Especially today, today we're going to be um, reading a different passage than what we just read a, min- a, few, minute ago, a few minutes ago, all of those. Um, but especially those, uh, I wanna encourage you as we hear the word of the Lord to allow those places that are uncomfortable to to shift us and to challenge us a little bit and to know that we can trust God in Christ through those things. Does that make sense? Okay. The other thing I just want to encourage you in is um, we'll talk a little bit more about what we have coming up, but um, you may have noticed the past few weeks, this fall, we've had a pretty sparse kind of congregation here, that we've had some kind of regular attendance challenges a bit. Maybe that's an understatement. Um, we have, a, I'm so thankful for our community. We have a young, vibrant uh, community that is engaged and excited and has so much kind of going on in our lives. Uh, one of the challenges with that is some of the uh, consistency that <laughs> other churches experience because of just the nature of, of life is not really as, as present in this community. So October is a really um, big month for us. We have a lot going on in the church. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. We have a guest speaker next week. We have baptism in a couple weeks. And I want to encourage you, and it's kind of funny, it's the, those that are sitting in the seats that I'm encouraging you to do this. <laughs> but, um, but I do want to encourage you, as faithful as we can be in our attendance um, here in these next few weeks, uh, there's a bunch of reasons for that. Of course, we believe that as we come and do anything in our lives over and over again, that that begins to form us and shape us in particular ways, but also as we seek to grow as a community, um, it is so helpful as we all pitch in, not only with our time and our resources, but even just our presence here. Um, As we have new uh, people who are new to our community walk in the door, it is such a desire of mine as a pastor for them to meet the fullness of our community, for them to meet each of you with your different personalities and the uh, different things that you bring to the table. And so I just want to encourage us as we move into the fall season here, which is very busy, and my pastor friends have also told me that in Middle Tennessee, it's especially a busy time in this season of life, but as faithful as we can be in regular attendance, I hope you receive this as a loving pastor today, um, that uh, that is a wonderful thing. Does that make sense? You receive that as a loving pastor today? Okay, good, good. All right, well, today I want to, let's stand again together. I'm just going to have you stand up, sit down, stand up, do all kinds of throughout the the week. Uh, I want to read another passage of scripture today, and this one is from the Psalms. It's Psalms chapter 8, and this one we're going to read a little differently. Um, This, you'll notice that the scripture is broken up into uh, lines with asterisks. So I will read the first line before the asterisk, and then I'll have you read the second line, and we'll go back and forth and back and forth. So David, let's put that up on the screen, Psalm 8. All right, let's speak this together. I'll do the first part, call and response here. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. To silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the works of your fingers, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? 
You have made them a little lower than the angels. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything All flocks and herds. And the fish in the sea. Lord, our Lord. You may be seated. Today we begin a new series, and this is a short three-Sunday series on selected psalms. Short Sunday series on selected psalms. Did you hear that? I love, I do alliteration without even trying. Um, the, uh, but we are doing this, this short series for three Sundays, and uh, I want to look, this book of the psalms is very interesting. It's a very unique book in all of the scripture. It is first and foremost a prayer book. Okay, the Psalms are a prayer book, a, a book of prayers. The Psalms are really the backbone of Christian prayer. They give us language for Christian prayer. And in addition to a prayer book, it's also a song book. Psalms is a song book. Most of the Psalms were and have been set to music. So we don't have a lot of the original music from the Psalms. We don't have any of the original music. In fact, those of you that have studied music, I know there's a few of us, Sam, uh, know that ancient music is uh, um, really hard for us to decipher. Like we don't have a lot of ancient music and um, ways that we can look back to. Um, but this is uh, wonderful with some psalms. We love the poetry and the majesty of the psalms in some ways. So if you think about a passage like, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. Wow, that's beautiful poetry. And then there's some psalms that frighten us. <laughs> so there's the beautiful ones, and then there's these frightening ones like, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Oh my gosh, ouch. Whoa, frightening, okay. The Psalms can be instructive to our prayer life, but they are not primarily instructional. They're not primarily intended to teach lessons or to teach us something. They are formational. They shape us through the praying of the Psalms. They don't even really tell stories, you notice that. So much of the scripture is either instruction or it's narrative, it kind of tells us stories. The Psalms aren't that way. The Psalms are simply poetry or prayers. They form us, they don't necessarily teach us. They give language to every part of the human experience and they take that language of the human experience and they point that language to God. This is perhaps why some of them frighten us, why they scare us, because they give us language when we're in a cheerful place, when we're a happy place, but they also, and perhaps more importantly, they give us language when we doubt, when we struggle, when we lament, when we're afraid. The Psalms give language to that. In fact, I think if you look at like most of the worship songs that are out there that are based on Psalms, so many of them are based on the praise cheerful ones. We don't have a whole lot of lamenting psalms or frightened psalms that we sing in church, do we? But if you look at the actual book, it makes up a huge chunk of them. Like it's really part of our story. I'm trying to redirect Lucy from something right now. She has gotten in this habit of when she gets excited about something, she goes, oh my God. Okay, she says that. I don't really like that she says that. Um, I, she's heard that enough times in movies or in TV and she just says it and I'm not proud that she says this. Uh, sometimes she just says OMG, okay? 
But sometimes when she gets really, she goes, oh my God, right? Um, now, if I would have said that at her age, my parents would have cringed. I would have been in trouble, right? And, and I'm old school in some ways. I, I prefer to use that phrase in moments that are intentional, in moments of reverence or thanksgiving, right? Not just when you see something exciting or something shocking, okay? So as a father, I gently correct her right now. She says that I say, gosh, oh my gosh, right, to change that. Now, of course, oh my gosh is a euphemism, right? It is something we use to replace for saying, oh my God, but I'm okay with that with my child. Um, I think, I wonder why we do that sometimes. I, I wonder why that's our response often. And, and I believe that there is something in uh, each of us. There is a deep instinct in us to cry out to God, to pray in times of difficulty, in times where we're shocked, in times where certain things are awakened in us, when our emotional nerves are triggered, when our breath is taken away, when we stand at the top of a mountain and we look out and we, our breath is taken away, our response is actually this instinct to pray, to call out God's name. We want to thank someone outside of ourselves. On the other hand, when we stub our toe, we often shout out to God, even in ways that might not be wholly appropriate. <laughs> when someone leaves us or hurts us, we ache for something outside of ourselves. We ache for someone to help in those times. Eugene Peterson says it this way, when that deep, deep center of our lives is exposed, our core humanity that biblical writers so vigorously designate as heart, we unthinkingly revert to our first language. We pray. That's our instinct. We long for God. We long for something outside of ourselves. When we look at the Psalms, um, the character, the person who we often most associate with writing and praying the Psalms is this guy named King David, okay? Um, we don't know how many of the Psalms are actually his originals. There's a lot of like doubt that's cast on that kind of as you study of how much exactly go back to King David. But, but we do believe that most of them, if not all of them are written in the tradition of King David at least. If not, they're, they're his originals uh, in the beginning. But the Bible gives us more information about this guy, David and his life than any other figure in scripture. So if you don't know who David was, um, he was Israel's great king. In fact, he was such a great king, he was the king by which all other of Israel's kings were measured. David was considered the great king. He started as a shepherd boy, the youngest son of Jesse. He killed Goliath as a shepherd boy with a slingshot, you know that story. He became a great warrior and he eventually was anointed as God's king of Israel. But David was complicated. He was broken like all of us are broken. But perhaps David's greatest strength was that David was able somehow, even though he messed up over and over again, even though he, he wasn't all wholly good in his life like all of us are broken, he was able to take everything that happened in his life and in some way internalize it, some way kind of make some meaning out of it, bring some meaning to it. He meditated on it. He meditated on these events that happened in his life. An important thing to remember when reading the Psalms is that this is music. It's poetry. 
It's intended to grab our emotions. It's intended to provoke us. So most of the language of the Psalms are feeling rather than knowing. We know this about music, don't we? Like if you just sat down and heard a song, which I guess we have these in school and things like that, but a song that was just instructional, they probably wouldn't play that on the radio, right? Like here's how to build a bookshelf. Like we're gonna write a song about that. No, that's not, it's emo- like songs are played on the radio because they grab our emotions. They, they stir us up, they provoke us to something. So these Psalms are often about feeling rather than just about knowing. Some people have called the Psalms the gut of the Bible, okay? So it's like the core, the gut of the Bible, the emotions that come out of it. So the Psalms usually don't talk just about God. They talk to God, okay? In the lectionary text that we read each week, you will notice that we don't ever read from the Psalms. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before. And anytime the Psalms are read in church, the church does not respond with, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. I wonder why we do that. Well, traditionally, the Psalms were a response to the words of scripture. So if you go to a very uh, liturgical church, they will read all of the passages that we read this morning, but they will also have Psalms in between all of the readings, okay? We've just kind of been taking baby steps here because this is a lot of scripture that we read on Sunday mornings, right? But the Psalms are usually seen as a response to the word of God, okay? In our church services, we usually depend on the lyrics of the music that we sing, most of which are based on the Psalms as kind of our response, But the Psalms were edited and arranged into five books, okay? So there's five books within the Psalms. And they were originally designed to be a response to the five books of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. So you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then you have the Psalms as a response to those, okay? So you've got one book and then you've got another book that responds. It's been suggested that these five books um, are the words of God in making, Genesis, redeeming, Exodus, providing, uh, Leviticus, and blessing would be Numbers and Deuteronomy. And the Psalms are the response to God's words. Something we take for granted in this is that our faith invites response. We have a faith that invites response. God is not just doing what he does and doesn't care about our participation. Our God is the one, our story of salvation is the one that always invites response. We are called to be a responding people. God speaks in order to be answered. And I wanna suggest that we need the Psalms. We need the Psalms. Worship, when we worship God, it's not supposed to only be emotive. Okay? Worship is not just catharsis. Okay? It's not just intended for us to come and just kind of lay everything out and that's the end of the story as far as our emotions go. The Psalms give us a way to root our prayers, to root our emotions in a conversation that's been going on for millennia. That we're not, they're not just our emotions any longer. They're part of the people of God expressing their emotions to God. N.T. Wright says, um, he's a theologian, and he kind of gives a critique of a lot of contemporary worship. And he says this, he he says, we kind of act sometimes like a spoiled child who's been taken up to the summit of Table Mountain. Table Mountain is this uh, giant mountain in Cape Town, South Africa, where you look over and you can not only see nature and ocean, but you can actually see the cities and everything. 
And he says, it's like a child who's been taken up to the top of Table Mountain and he can see the city and the ocean spread out before him. He has everything in front of him, but all he wants to do is go to a corner and play his Game Boy. <laughs> that sometimes what's going on in our life, we, we become kind of inward and self-focused and we have nowhere to actually root our emotions. The Psalms give us that. They give us a bigger story to place our lives in. Our feelings matter. That's important. Our everyday feelings matter. But in the Psalms, our feelings are given a home. Our feelings are rooted in the greater story of the songs and prayers that have been offered to God throughout history. And we believe that singing and praying the Psalms is transformative, that it changes the way we even see the world. While many of these songs go back to King David, I I certainly think that, I definitely think they're written in the tradition of King David, if not his originally. But most of the Psalms, we believe, were compiled and edited during the Babylonian captivity of Israel in the sixth century BC, okay? Why during that time? Well, here's what's going on during the Babylonian captivity. Israel was in a foreign land at that time. They'd been captured. They had pagan oppressors over them. And yet they still believed, even though they had pagan oppressors who were ruling over them and telling them what to do, they still somehow believed that they were the people of God. So they have this struggle. We're the people of God, but we live in a pagan land. And then even some of the Psalms say, how do we sing our songs of being God's people, of being God's chosen people, of God's liberation? How do we sing our songs in this foreign place, in this weird place? So what they did is they compiled the Psalms. They said, let's put all of our old songs and stories together in this book so that we can always remember who we are as a people. We can always sing this together. And in many ways, this is what we're still doing today. In our different contexts, in our different cities, in our stories and throughout the world, we're coming and as we sing the Psalms together, we're going, these are our songs, even though we're in a foreign land. Even though we're in a strange place, even though things sometimes feel weird, like these are our songs to God. We need to learn to sing these ancient songs in our time, in our land, and allow them to remind us of who God is and to transform us. So today, briefly, I want to look at this psalm we just read, Psalm 8. Psalm 8 talks about God's sovereignty first. Um, In this psalm, the psalmist praises God as the one who is sovereign. The psalmist is probably basing this just on creation itself or on God's faithful acts throughout history. But the psalm is not just a reflection on God as creator. It's a reflection on God's power, on God's authority in the world today, in the world now. The psalmist is reflecting on the fact that God is over everything in the earth and in the heavens And for those of us that have been in church for a long time and we're just used to reading these kind of psalms rotely, we might miss that. We might miss the implications of that, that God is over everything. Many of us believe that, or at least we say we believe that, but we don't actually act that way. We don't live that way. So we say, sure, God is Lord of the world, but I am ultimately responsible to provide for my family, right? Or we say, sure, God is Lord of the world, but I'm ultimately responsible to get myself out of this mess, aren't I? Sure, God is Lord of the world, but I'm really the one responsible for my kids to turn out a certain way, okay? Sure, God is Lord of the world, but this person hurt me so badly, I need to get revenge. Or sometimes 
our worship goes to something external. Sure, God is Lord over the world, but if my husband or wife would just get their act together, right? Sure, God is Lord over the world, but, but I just need peace right now. And I know I can find peace in this bottle of this thing. Or if I just scroll Facebook long enough, I'll find peace. The psalmist is saying something radical. God is Lord over all of it. And the appropriate response to that is just submission, just trusting him. Now, where does that lead us? Well, we might be tempted to think, okay, well, if God is sovereign, nothing's up to me, so I'm just gonna binge watch Netflix in my underwear all day, right? I don't need to do anything. God's sovereign, right? Don't, don't do that, right? The beautiful thing about this God is that he is Lord over the world and he invites us to participate in the working out of his kingdom in the world. That is such a beautiful thing. And we do that with all of our heart, with everything that we have. But first, and the only really grounding and foundation for our work in the world is to first acknowledge that he runs the world, not us. He is Lord. That's what the, world, the word Lord means. He rules. And this is the grounding of our participation. So God created the world, God sustains the world, and God is making the world whole again. The psalmist continues, he says, through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. The older translation of children and infants is babies and sucklings. What does that mean? Well, I don't think it just means that children are crying out in praise, even though I think that's true but rather it's a way of saying that God hears the cry of children. Most times that babies are mentioned in the Old Testament, it's, they're mentioned as victims of oppression. So if you read the Old Testament and you see babies throughout there, usually babies are mentioned as the ones who are victims of oppression, that they're the ones who are suffering. And this is a reminder for those facing oppression that God cares about the vulnerable. God cares about kids and God cares about the most vulnerable in our society. And it is actually a reminder to God's people that God will and God does respond to those cries. The psalmist says that Yahweh has established a stronghold. That's what it says. In other words, it's kind of like the translation is God has built a building and that building, the name of that building is strength. That's kind of the literal translation of this. And that building, it says, silences the foe and the avenger. So there's opposition to God's strength, but the opposition has been silenced. I love that here. I love that the ultimate way to show up evil here is not in like killing evil, like tearing it down. The ultimate way as it's described is that evil is silenced. The avenger is silenced. What implications does that have for us? I don't know about you, but when I face discouraging thoughts or doubts or struggles, I'm not looking for those things to be just defeated, just struck down. I'm looking for them to be silenced, right? Um, Satan in the scripture is most often described as the accuser, the one who accuses, not the one who tears down or the one who fights. He is the one who accuses falsely. He tries to unconvince us of the truth, right? We know who we are and Satan comes and tries to convince us that that thing that we know about ourselves, our identity in Christ is not true, is not right. 
This says he is silenced. Satan is the one who tries to bring shame, who tells, us that, tells you that you can't be acceptable, you can't be loved, you can't be used by God because something about you, that you're unworthy of God's acceptance, just at the core of who you are, that you've done something so horrible that you will always be nothing more than second best. That's what, the Satan, what Satan says. Our God is the one who silences that voice. He is the creator and the sustainer of the world. And that means those voices mean nothing. They mean nothing. Only his voice matters in the world. Notice, and you'll notice throughout the Old Testament, this blending of God as creator, God as deliverer, and God as sustainer. Like they kind of all go together. They all kind of mix together. The Old Testament always does that. Yes, God is creator. But God's work as the creator was not limited to Genesis 1 and 2. He's still creating. He's still working. He continues to redeem his people from slavery. He continues to defeat powers that assert themselves against him. He always makes order out of chaos. That's what he does over and over again. The psalmist goes on to say, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. So creation is artistic. Creation is this physical act of God. God is physically, intimately involved in creation. We see that, okay? And then we see a turn. The God who is the one who created the majesty of the world, which is beyond our comprehension, this God, this is the one who created everything, the stars and the sky and all these things. And then the psalmist says, who are human beings? That you are mindful of us. Why would you care about us? Why would you be mindful of us? God, why would you even think about us? Know today that God is mindful of you. Right now, he thinks about you and he smiles. You bring a smile to God's face. You are God's child. No matter how far you run away, you've ignored his presence and his guidance. You are his and he loves you. And yet, he not only thinks about us, the scripture says here he acts on our behalf. He acts on our behalf. There are a lot of people I think about throughout the week, like something comes to mind. You can think about someone, but not actually act on that towards them, act towards them. It's great to think about somebody on their birthday. That's a wonderful thing. It's another thing to take the step to actually call them or give them a card or give them a gift, right? Those are different things. Not only does God think about us, but that's, and that's wonderful, but God has acted on our behalf. He has acted and delegated authority of the world to us. Wow. We are stewards of the world. We are called to be God's image bearers in the world. And it says here this provocative phrase that's been debated throughout history. It says, human beings are a little lower than the angels. In other words, what it's saying is they are slightly less than divine. Human beings are a little less than heavenly beings, slightly less than God is what it's saying here. And this is pretty amazing that God in his choosing has made human beings only a little less than divine, only a little less than God. I don't like it when people speak badly about humanity. Sometimes we say phrases like, I'm only human. Say, oh, I'm just gonna do dumb stuff because I'm human, right? 
Or we talk about, oh, us humans, we're so terrible, we're so horrible. And I, I understand what's behind that, because humanity is capable of awful things. Um, but I don't think that's consistent with the biblical story's description of humanity. Human beings have been made by God only a little lower than God, it says here. The psalm says that human beings wear a crown. We are the representatives of God's sovereignty in the world. Has anybody ever read C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or seen the movies? Yeah, okay, so a bunch of us. Good, this will resonate. So The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I'm reading this to Lucy right now. Um, And there is this moment in the book where Mr. and Mrs. Beaver tell the children about an old Narnian prophecy. And I remember, you guys have heard me say this before, but I remember the old 80s BBC um, television-like version of this story. And so Mr. and Mrs. Beaver have really thick Scottish accents and they're basically like big puppets or big, they're dressed up in all this um, Jim Henson kind of stuff. And, and so there's this Narnian prophecy where sons of Adam and daughters of Eve will one day sit on Narnia's throne. And I love this, uh, the prophecy goes like this. When Adam's flesh and Adam's bone sits at Ker Paravel in throne, the evil time will be over and done. Because done kind of only in in Scottish rhymes with those other things, I guess. But but I love this as a reflection because human beings were created as rulers, as stewards, as image bearers, as governors of the world on God's behalf. Now, of course, we turned from that, didn't we? We've been selfish and we've turned to counterfeit gods and we've sought to run the world without God himself. Christ has come to show us what that true rule looks like. Come to show us what our real stewardship, our real governorship over the world is supposed to look like. He is the one human being who is faithful and true and right. He is the one who rules on God's behalf and in him, there will be a day where our role as God's governors and stewards will be fully restored. At the end of the book, the four children are crowned and they're crowned at a castle called Care Paravel. Care Paravel. And I was wondering what that possibly means. Well, in old English, that means lesser court, lesser court. And it's a reflection on this idea that human beings are always lesser than God. Not lesser in quality, but in that that we are always lovingly limited by God who gives us our authority, okay? I say lovingly limited because we wanna do what we wanna do. We wanna just do whatever we want. We wanna have, we consider that to be freedom. We're creatures who desire to get our own way. But if you think about it, we don't really want that. I don't want a world where I get everything that I want. That world would be terrible, right? We are lovingly limited by the God who gives us our authority. That's why the Christian prayer is always, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We reorient ourselves to a deeper desire to know and to worship God. Human beings are stewards. We are called as those who stand between God and the world. The Psalm says we rule over the sheep and the oxen, the wild beasts, the birds, the fish, all that stuff. We carry a responsibility. That's one of the things that we celebrate this Saturday at the blessing of the animals that we're gonna be doing. Um, We're not blessing pets in like a weird way. Like we're not trying to pray for their souls or anything like weird like that, that's not what we're doing. We're praying for pets 
in recognizing that human beings are stewards of all of creation. We're reminding ourselves of our responsibility to care for the world. Those of you who have pets, those pets are kind of a reminder to you that human beings, we carry this responsibility to care for creation, that we care for the world, including these creatures. That's why I think it's so important, like a Christian theology of our world, of creation, of our environment. I think one of the reasons why Christians are no longer known as environment people is because we've lost our biblical calling towards stewardship of the world. Part of the reason is that somewhere along the line in the book of Genesis, where it says human beings are to rule over the fish of the sea and all that, we took it to mean that we're to dominate over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. We took it in a more kind of selfish kind of way, but it's actually this idea of caring for it, like literally like gardeners caring for our world. That's the Christian calling. In fact, God created the world, but creation was not the end of it. Somehow, the biblical narrative shows us human beings are called to see creation through to its ultimate destiny, that we have a role in stewarding the world to be how it is supposed to be. Wow, that's huge. And of course, humanity has failed from the beginning and creation continues to look forward to reaching its destiny. It says, Romans 8, 22 says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now we could say that this Psalm is optimistic about humanity. There are other scriptures and other Psalms that talk about humanity more negatively. This one speaks of humanity in a really high kind of light. There are other psalms and scriptures that remind us that we're severely broken by sin, that we miss the mark over and over again. And we need to remember that too. We need to remember that we're not whole without God. And yet we also need to remember that when Genesis 1 says human beings are created in the image of God, that that's still true. That even though we've been broken because of sin, that God still desires to use us, that he's come close to us, God has never given up on us. Theologian John Golden Gay says, if we look one way at the extraordinary nature of the cosmos as a whole, we can be overwhelmed by our insignificance. God bids us to look the other way at the earthly creation project that God still intends to complete and in which we have a significant role. As Christians, we are called to read all the Psalms through the lens of Jesus. In fact, a lot of people throughout history have suggested that when we read the Psalms, we're supposed to read them as if Jesus is reading them to the Father. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. Jesus is the one who realizes that he is completely dependent on the Father. The two are always connected, always linked. And Jesus is the one who is crowned with glory and honor, the one who is faithful when we were unfaithful, the one who carried out the responsibility to care for the world by ultimately dying for the world and rising again to bring about a new creation. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament quotes from Psalm 8 and reminds us of that. This week, I just want to remind us of a few things. If we were to take all of this that we talked about, kind of bring it down here, a few things. First of all, you are at the same time wholly dependent on God, completely dependent on God, and also wholly valuable. Those two always go together, okay? We often, too often, either downplay our weaknesses 
So we'll downplay the fact that we're broken and that we're sinful. And then we remember that we're valuable. We remember that we're special. Or we remember that we're broken and we're flawed and we forget that we are incredibly valuable. The biblical story, those two always go together. Don't let the enemy tell you that you are insignificant, that you are flawed beyond redemption, that you are broken beyond repair, that you're shabby and unlovable, that you're too old or too young or too silly or too introverted or too lazy or past your prime or whatever it is. God invites you to participate in his kingdom today and he calls you valuable. He calls you special. But this is also not a kind of humanism. We are valuable because the creator and sustainer of the universe has crowned us with glory and honor in Christ Jesus. He runs the world. And here's the beautiful thing. The more we recognize that, that he runs the world, the more truly human we become, the more we are who we were created to be. We were created to worship him, to give him glory. And as we do that, we come alive. Most of you know that Ashley and I, we're just ending here, but um, Ashley and I have started picking up scooters throughout the week, okay? So there's this thing, these scooters downtown, Lime and Bird scooters, and you can pick those up and take them home and charge them and then lay them back out again, and they pay you for that, right? So it's this thing we've been doing, you know, the past week or so, and um, it takes us about an hour in the evening and about 30 minutes in the morning, and we don't have to do this. It's not like we, we have to do that in order to make ends meet or whatever, but we're trying to build up our savings. We're trying to reach some goals that we have as a family, and so this extra income can be a really beautiful thing. And I was just, you know, busting my butt doing this, you know, like just getting out there and trying to get as many as I can and bringing them back and doing all this thing. And I told my pastor friend that this is what I was doing. And, and he said, oh, wow, what a great way for you to pray for your neighborhood, is what he said. And I wish that I had thought about that. <laughs> I wish that was the reason that I was doing it, right? And it was kind of convicting to me. And I began to think, wow. It actually is a great way to do that. Since then, I've been making this effort to observe the people around me as I do this and to pray for them, to engage in conversation. You gotta be careful because you miss the scooters if you talk for too long. You gotta go out and get the scooters. But, but uh, you know, engage in conversation and really think about, God, thank you that you are working in this world and I get to participate in that even as I load scooters into my car. In what ways is God calling you to steward the things that stand right in front of you? Perhaps this provides for us a theology of gardening, of craftsmanship, of art, of nesting and tending for a home, for the small course corrections that are involved in parenting, right? For the daily routines and rhythms of a marriage, for the way that we care for our office and our work environment. Those things are not something other than the Christian life. They're not just extra or auxiliary to our life. But somehow as stewards in our world that we are to care for these things as governors of God, even our everyday lives. We acknowledge his lordship and our dependence on him. And with thanksgiving, we carry out our role as stewards of the world. Let's pray. Gracious, loving God, thank you for the opportunity to participate in your kingdom in the world. Thank you that you have, um, you have crowned us. And ultimately, as we've missed the mark, as we've denied our calling and our 
uh, role as governors in the world, as stewards, that, that, Lord, you have shown us in Jesus what a full humanity looks like. So today I pray that you'd guide us in that, in the little things, the little places where we get to take you into our world, where we don't leave those kind of as separate, but that we get to follow you in this way. Um, we trust you. Lord, I pray for those that today are struggling with their own sense of self and worth and value. Um, I pray that they would know today and be reminded of who they were created to be. That, Lord, you were the one who created the stars and the moon and the beautiful sunset and sunrise and all these things. And yet, Lord, you're mindful of us and you act on our behalf. We're so thankful for that, Lord. We trust you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.